Welcome to One More Time, a wind band podcast, brought to you by the University of Illinois Bands. My name is Sean Smith. I'm the Assistant Director of Athletic Bands at Illinois, and I will be the host of the podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Cohn. Hi, Sean. It's great to be here. I'm a trumpeter in the marching line. I'm a junior at the University of Illinois, and I'm very excited to get this going. And if you can't tell from Stephen's voice, he is majoring in broadcast journalism. Thank you for joining us on our first episode. There are several wind band podcasts available out there today, and we decided to take a little bit of a different tack in approaching this one. Instead of going the normal, I'm going to interview someone, and we're going to talk back and forth, and we're going to give you some information, we're actually going to create stories for you. There will be interviews, but will not often be that back and forth kind. And I think that should make it a lot better... Uh because it's going to appeal to everyone, not just band directors or musicians. Anyone who's interested in bands, marching band, or concert band should find our stories and our podcast interesting each month. Now, there will be a few segments that occur over and over. And the one that will appeal to people who aren't band directors the least is our two-minute rehearsal techniques. During the segment, conductors, educators, and other musicians will offer a rehearsal technique, or two if they can fit it into two minutes. In this episode we will hear from Dr. Beth Peterson, the Associate Director of Bands at the University of Illinois and the conductor of the Illinois Wind Orchestra. And if you're not a band director like me, you can just hit that 15-second advance button eight times. Uh, the tip that I'll share today is what I would call flowing air through the horn. Uh, I think this is a great way to get younger students, well, all students actually, um, to uh, work on ensemble togetherness, sound production, rhythm, and articulation. And um, it's called wind patterning, basically. And it, it comes from, at least it came from my days of playing a brass instrument. So let's say the rhythm is a quarter, two eighth notes, a quarter, two eighth notes. So it might be counted like this. One, two, and three, four, and. I would ask students to go. So they're getting the idea of, of what the articulation would feel like and how the air moves through their mouth. Um, and it, it ends up aligning passages really well. It's a great way to involve everybody. It's a good opportunity for uh, technical passages for people to just finger and sort of take away that actual having to play it over and over again, but they're getting a chance to repeat it differently by fingering and wind patterning that air through the horn. Um, the next aspect of that, especially with brass players, would be to have them wind pattern that, that rhythm first and then buzz it. So you might have them do something like this. <laughs> and then have them buzz. I think once you get brass players to, to take the horn apart and just buzz the instrument, um, again, they're working on articulation, the airflow through the horn, and hopefully the core center of their sound. So eventually that also helps produce um, really good tone, better, better centered tone, um, and better intonation. So quick review, wind patterning, uh, rhythmic passages of any level of difficulty um, is great for ensemble togetherness, rhythm, articulation, and eventually for sound production. Thank you. Have a great rehearsal. Before we move on to our story, we have one recurring segment. Scott Schwartz, the director of the Sousa Archive and Center for American Music, will give us a little insight into the history of wind band. Often he will do this through the work of John Philip Sousa. And today, Scott starts with a bit of music. That was a recording of the U.S. Marine Band um, in 2010 performing Sousa's musical character piece, Sheridan's Ride, depicting the October 19, 
1864 battle between General Early and General Sheridan during uh, the American Civil War. The musical character piece was written in um, November of 1891. The battle itself, 1864, um, Sousa is almost 10 years old. He's, he grows up in um, Washington, D.C. Um, he's well aware of um, the Civil War. He can hear those sounds and battles in his backyard. He's well aware of it as a young boy growing up. Patrick Kilmore is the go-to band. He's the number one band in the Blakely Ensemble. The Sousa Band is the number two band. I guess Sousa was comfortable with that, maybe. Patrick Gilmore dies two days before Sousa's band premieres in Plainfield, New Jersey. That's where his band kicks off. Not New York, not Washington, D.C., and his concert is adjusted so that they do an introductory memorial to Patrick Gilmore two days after he died. The work is actually written by Gilmore but never published, so Sousa arranges it for his band, the title of it, Deaths at the Door, or The Voice of the Departed Soul. And that's how he begins his concert. And then he follows that up with a series of theatrical pieces written for band. Um, Rossini, um, he does Grieg's Pierre Gint Suite. He does The Evening Star from Tannhäuser with Mr. Antonio Galassi, who's coming from Germany, but he's stuck in quarantine. So not even Mr. Galassi is there to sing this great piece by Wagner. So... This first concert of Sousa's great civilian band is not getting off to a great start, but he makes the best of it. If you look at the pieces he's included in this concert, we expect a ton of Sousa marches. No, we have Sheridan's Ride, a famous piece that's well-received by the Marine Band, and his final goodbye medley which we'll talk a bit more. Those are the only two Sousa pieces for this first concert. The reviewer of this concert starts out, such an entertainment as that given by Sousa's new marine band is exceedingly refreshing. Especially is this the case after the nauseating amount of trash which goes upon the stage nowadays to cater to a supposed public taste. That the public taste is not so depraved or vapid is evidenced by the marked contrast in the makeup of the audiences, which the trashy performances attract, and the fine one that was attracted to the music hall for last night's concert. So, here we've got this character piece depicting an 1864 battle scene that really becomes then the essence of the concert and a high point for it. The reviewer writes, The selections, however, which won the greatest applause of the evening and received encores, which demanded the repetition in part in two instances, the Sheridan's Ride, and the Egyptian trumpets, the repetition being demanded not once, but twice, 
as they were well received and clearly gave an indication that Caesar's compositions were important and caught their attention. That is the beginning of Sousa's civilian band. I really recommend that everyone take a few minutes to listen to Sheridan's Rhymes, which is rarely played, and begin to understand Sousa's theatrical side as a musical character piece, which is truly underrated, but an absolute delightful piece that everyone should hear. Take a couple minutes, listen to the U.S. Marine Band, and it's 2010. In discussing the concept of our first story with a colleague, he asked, why are we so obsessed with first? So I started to wonder the exact same thing. Just what is it about first that pique our interest? Often being first means something for some reason, usually because you become synonymous with it. Think about all the brand names that we use now. Q-tip, Kleenex, Xerox. They're all brand names for something else. I did a quick internet search to see what the rest of the world thinks of being first, and an article in Forbes mentions that marketing and branding are a huge, important aspect for being first to businesses. Our approach to history is often reverential towards the first. People can easily rattle off names of people who are first in something. Amelia Earhart, John Hancock, Charles Lindbergh, the Gutenberg Bible, and Chuck Yeager are all easily remembered as first. George Washington is a first, and he is irreproachable in American history because of what he did as the first in pretty much everything. It's no wonder that the world of bands uses the same idea, tracking their first and debating what the true first might be. In our story today, we'll discuss some of those first. Stephen and I will narrate through the story, bringing in some knowledgeable people along the way. The first first we are going to tackle is the very first band. And like every other first, or at least most of them, this is a tricky first because the research on the topic is far from complete. As with anything in early history, especially early music history, we often have to approximate. Yeah, exactly. And what our researchers found is that the first bands ever to appear may be La Grande Atbois of the court of Louis XIV. Now that is like the 18th take and he finally got it right. No one needed to know that, but uh, they were a double read ensemble. They were considered a military band and they were directed by Jean-Baptiste Louis. One try right there. Yeah, just took one. Just one. While there may have been consorts of wind instruments before this, their size really didn't make them bands in the traditional sense. Nor was their instrumentation really set, but Loli's group was fairly regular. But this really isn't a band in the way we think of it, right? Because it's just oboes and bassoons. Um, and old oboes and bassoons. So just imagine that sound. Frank Battisti states that the modern wind band comes from the French National Guard band, La Garde Republicain. One try. During the French Revolutionary era is when, the, when this group started. With this group, we get, in general, a set instrumentation for winds, brass, and percussion. Most of the instruments are in their modern form or something very close. And uh, this is also probably when a repertoire of original music starts being developed. Edwin Frankel Goldwyn feels that no other event or uh, had an effect on bands uh, quite like the French Revolution did. So the first defined wind group and the first band are both French. So what is even harder to define would be the first band piece, and it's nearly impossible to establish. And it really depends on your definition of band music. So Sean, how uh, does it count if strings are included? Does it need to be a large ensemble? Well, this is tricky because when we study wind band history, many times we go back to Sonata Piani Forte by Gabrielli, 
as the first piece for winds. The problem there is it's a small ensemble, just two choirs, about eight people, and the work has viols included. And those are stringed instruments, so it's not strictly winds. Harmony music ensembles, though, are very well-known uh, wind ensembles. The problem being there is that there are eight players, and uh, we generally don't play their music by a large band in the way we think of it. So the first traditional large group, big band music we can think of, or we can find, really, is probably from that French National Guard band. So since they were the first in band, they were probably the first in repertoire, although their repertoire probably largely consisted of marches. So like bands, the first piece is also a gray area, and there's no definite answer. While we're on the topic of repertoire, let's jump to another kind of band and talk about marching bands. And let's talk about probably the most recognizable thing a marching band plays, the fight song. Steven, who has the first? I-L-L? I-L, no. Funny. Yeah, I know. There's actually a debate between Michigan and Illinois to see who can claim that honor. But since you really don't mess with school pride, we're going to settle it by bringing in two experts. Barry Hauser from the University of Illinois and John Pasquale from the University of Michigan. They're both the marching band directors at their respective schools. Well, this is one of those things that I think when I got the job here, I was told that we had the first college fight song. And then obviously through a lot of homework and research and just being cautious with how that is all being portrayed, I think it's kind of a, a gray area. And I'm sure my colleague, Dr. Pasquale, will, will weigh on this as well. You know, it's interesting because I guess a lot of this goes back to Notre Dame was the first college marching band, and I thought for sure that they would have had the first fight song, but I found out later that the Victory March wasn't uh, written until 1908. I know Illinois Loyalty was written in 1906, and then obviously I thought a little bit about some of our institutions out east. You know, you look at Harvard and all of those schools that have been in existence for a very long time, so I thought for sure that they would have claimed to, to the first. found out that Boston College, their fight song for Boston was written in 1885, but the marching band wasn't founded until 1919. So the only thing that I can think of, and I'll, I'll wait for Dr. Pasquale to weigh in about Hill to the Victors, but the only thing that I can think of is because of the university establishing the marching program and the, you know, the band program here, that that's maybe why our predecessors said that we have the claim to the first college fight song. In terms of the fight song dates, the victors here, which actually most people um, think the name of our fight song is actually entitled Hail to the Victors, but that's actually not correct. So the title itself is just the victors. Mm. Um, yeah, common misconception. Yeah. But um, So there you go. Uh, it was composed in 1898 by a student here at Michigan, Louis Elbel, and um, it was written for an exciting uh, victory over the University of Chicago. And the fight song at the time, now this isn't really the fight song for the school, but um, which, is, which could certainly be argued, but um, they would play the tune, uh, There'll Be a Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight, which was actually a pretty famous song here. Um, I don't know if it was if it was technically the school's fight song or if they just played it because they liked it or something. But um, so Elville wanted to write something a, a bit more energetic to kind of match the win over Chicago. And out of that, he wrote 
the fight song The Victors, which is actually based on the trio of the Spirit of Liberty March. And so that's how it happened. Now, in terms of who composed what first, I, I honestly don't know. But um, just from the dates, which I just heard from Barry, perhaps 1898 was technically written first. However, The Victors wasn't always our college fight song. So perhaps there are two separate questions going on. One, who actually wrote it first, and then and then actually who's had the longest uh, standing fight song. That's certainly not us, because there's a time period in there um, where we were not using the evictors, so that could uh, possibly affect some things. I think the interesting part for Illinois was that, yes, Illinois Loyalty was the first school song for us, 1906, but five years later, Asti Wow Wow, which we kind of call our fight song, compared to a school song, what's the difference? I really don't know. Um, but Askiwawa was written in 1911 because they wanted more of a rousing energy when they would score a touchdown and so forth. So interesting that, yeah, there's maybe a claim by some that this is the first and maybe longest played, but it still wasn't enough of a rousing piece of music. So that's why Askiwawa came about. And to throw a wrench in this entire dispute, Boston College claims to have the first college fight song. For Boston was written in 1885 and has been in use ever since. It did have some changes along the way, so I don't know if we're going to consider it in consistent use, and we don't know if it was played by their marching band when it was written. Um, and as we talk about first, we'll have to continue to learn that semantics are everything. So how about an undisputed first, Stephen? What was the first college or university to have a director of bands, and who was it? That one's an easy one, Sean. The University of Illinois, Albert Austin Harding, was appointed as the director of bands at the U of I in 1907, and he was the first at an American university to be named a director of bands. Now, what Harding is no most notable for are his transcriptions and the high standards of performances of his bands, but mostly his relationship with John Philip Sousa. Sousa composed a march for the U of I and thought so highly of the program that he donated his papers to UI bands upon his death in 1932. Harding served as director of bands for 41 years and retired in 1948 before he died in 1958. The building that houses Illinois bands to this day is named after its first director, and Harding's funeral viewing took place in the main rehearsal hall of the building. Harding was instrumental in a number of firsts at Illinois. Was that a pun? I am quite punny. And he took part in a national first that had a huge impact on the band world. He was one of the first members of the American Bandmasters Association, which was founded in 1929. ABA is the first in the alphabet soup of band organizations. Gary Smith, Professor Emeritus at the University of Illinois, previous director of the Marching Illini, and current president of the organization, will shed some light on its history. So the concert band movement really, uh, really sparked a great interest in this. And, and, and of course, when uh, Edwin Franco Goldman, who had one of the greatest uh, bands of all, the Goldman Band, which was headquartered in New York, uh, he began to discuss the the legitimate aspects of the contraband movement with uh, all the, the great band people at that time, including Sousa and Harding from University of Illinois and so forth. And they felt that something needed to be done to sort of increase the momentum of the popularity of the contraband movement. And so there was just a lot of... Uh, discussion and communications between several of the professional band conductors at that time. And uh, the sort of the ABA concept was uh, sort of started when when they had a meeting in Chicago 
in the summer of 1928 in Chicago, and Harding was part of that to, to sort, of, sort of discuss all of this, uh, you know, what can be done and so forth, and that's sort of when uh, the thought of uh, forming something like the ABA was, was uh, brought up. Um, in fact, Harding was quoted as saying, uh, we conceived the idea of creating an ABA for the purpose of furthering the interest of outstanding American bandmasters and of interesting composers, arrangers, and music publishers in the wind band music. It would be the aim of the ABA to unite the concerted efforts to influence the best composers to write for the wind band. Uh, then in 1929, when, in New York, when uh, Goldman actually called a meeting together to sort of uh, create the Constitution and, you know, standardization of instrumentation and a lot of things occurred in that particular meeting, including the idea of having a national convention every year. And uh, the first convention was in 1930 with, uh, in March in Ohio, Middleton, Ohio. And um, the charter members were there, of course, and that's really where the ABA really got its real start. Well, there's a lot of Illinois in this episode. Let's take a quick break from the story and talk about Illinois. Most podcasts have a commercial break to bring in an ad from the sponsors, but One More Time doesn't really have a sponsor besides Illinois Bands. So we're going to take a mid-episode break to talk a bit about UI Bands. We have an exciting month of events coming up at Illinois Bands. Our next big event is our homecoming concert featuring the Illinois Wind Symphony, the Wind Orchestra, and the Marching Illini. They will all be performing together on the same concert in the Follinger Great Hall at Cranert Center on Friday, October 27th at 7.30. The repertoire for the ensembles will be varied, but we will have something for everyone. From Lincolnshire Posey by the Wind Symphony to Illini Fantasy by the Wind Orchestra, and the Marching Illini will, of course, play all of your Illinois favorites. Saturday is also our homecoming game. And Sean, homecoming's a major day for Illinois bands, as it will officially start our countdown to 150. Illinois bands will start to celebrate the 150th year of the program on Homecoming 2018. Shortly after that concert, on Saturday, November 4th, at 7.30, the Wind Symphony will be presenting a concert in memory of David Maslanka, who recently passed away. The concert will feature his Symphony No. 5, along with a second playing of Lincolnshire Posey and Christopher Theophanidis' I Wander the World in a Dream of My Own Making. The Illinois Marching Band Championships will be on October 21st, and there are great events that bring in bands from all over the state to perform in historic Memorial Stadium. The Marching Line I will perform a homecoming halftime on Saturday, October 28th, which will be themed for the band Chicago as they celebrate their 50th anniversary. The Marching Line I will also perform in a Veterans Day game during which Illinois will host Indiana. The bands will present the joint halftime show, which will be patriotic and honor our nation's veterans. Now let's get back to our story. So Sean, being the first collegiate marching band is a significant claim and the undisputed first is Notre Dame. We were able to talk to Larry Dwyer, assistant director of bands in Notre Dame, about the university's marching beginnings. The history that we've been able to find through the archives is that in 1845, they started giving lessons, music lessons, to students at the university. And by by commencement of that school year, 1846, the band actually played for the commencement. So we date the band from 1845-46 school year, which seems to make it the uh, uh, oldest uh, university band uh, in the United States. At least it's been in 
continuous existence. To me, that's kind of a surprising thing when you look at the fact that you know universities like, say, Harvard were around maybe 200 years earlier, and you would think they would have had a band, but but I guess um, you know I'm sure they had some sort of music program, but probably it was more along the lines of orchestral sort of things, and uh, and bands just really hadn't come into their own. So I, we think that Father Soren probably had grown up in France where there was a tradition of military bands, and so he figured that's what would fit at Notre Dame. According to the history we have, the first football game at Notre Dame was played in 1887 uh, when the University of Michigan came down to the campus here and actually came down a couple days earlier. Uh, I, I mean, football at that time was nothing like the way it is now with the, the huge stadiums and, and giant crowds and everything. It was basically a club sport, and Michigan came down a couple days before the game uh, because they wanted to teach the Notre Dame football club actually what the rules of the game were and show them how to play. And so they spent a couple days kind of giving tutorials, and then they played the game. Uh, the story is that the band went out and played at that very first football game, but uh, we're thinking they probably just stood around on the sidelines or sat in the bleachers, uh, played some of the uh, traditional marches that may have been uh, in existence at that time. The concept of a marching band is pretty straightforward. Now, there are a variety of styles, all with rich traditions and histories, but in general, when we say marching band, we know what you expect to see. The same is relatively true of concert bands, but the philosophies that educators bring to the band can really influence the sounds the band produces. It's very common to hear the term wind ensemble applied to all kinds of bands. So what our research led us to was Fred Fennell created the Eastman Wind Ensemble in 1952, which was the first of its kind. That is absolutely true. Fred Fennell did create the first wind ensemble in 1952. But many people think of the wind ensemble as simply a one-on-the-part ensemble, and that's all there is to it. And if you use that as your definition, then we have to actually go back a little bit to the small concert band conducted by Hugh McMillan at the University of Colorado. McMillan was band director there from 1936 through 1978, and it was reported that he gave several concerts with his one-on-a-part small band before the 1952 Eastman Wind Ensemble founding. But one-on-a-part playing is not the only aspect of the wind ensemble philosophy. We often forget that wind ensemble is more than just a name. It also entails flexible ensembles made up of varied instrumentation based on the orchestration of the composer with a focus of repertoire written specifically for winds, not a diet of transcriptions which is found in most bands before the Eastman Wood Ensemble. And another title we can give out is the first professional band. Professional orchestras have had a long and fruitful history in the United States, but bands have not fared as well. Today, outside of military bands, there is one well-known professional band, the Dallas Winds. This was not the case during the 19th and early 20th century. Bands were all the rage and were prominently featured in many communities. The most famous is probably Sousa's band, but the very first professional band was the Independent Bands in New York, which was founded in the early 1830s. The band would eventually be renamed for its revolutionary leader in 1836 and become Dodworth's Band. Bands were all the rage in their heyday, and their use in the United States extends very far back, even before the founding of the country. The first recorded instance of a band concert was in 1767, 
Richard Hansen wrote in his book, The American Wind Band, A Cultural History, that the performance was likely given in New York by a regimental band named the Royal American Band of Music. And he does state that there could have been earlier performances, but a lack of programs given out during that period don't provide the evidence needed. So this is the first performance we can substantiate. And speaking of bands that are all the rage, there is one band that can still pull in a huge crowd wherever it goes, the President's Own Marine Band. We have Gunnery Sergeant Kier Wharton, historian for the President's Own, to discuss the Marine Band's first public concert. When the nation's capital moved from Philadelphia to Washington in 1800, Marine Corps headquarters and the Marine Band moved with it. Lacking a permanent barracks in Washington, D.C., the Marines temporarily camped on the grounds which had been selected for the National University. The band's first public performance in the new capital took place on August 21, 1800, just north of where the Lincoln Memorial is now. This area was then known as Camp Hill, or Peter Hill, near E Street between 23rd and 25th Streets. The performance was recorded in a journal entry by Mrs. Anna Thornton. There is no mention of repertoire or instrumentation, only that she went to the hill to hear the band, which was playing at the tents, which are fixed on the ground intended for a university. Just 10 days after this performance, Marine Corps Commandant William Ward Burroughs wrote to Lieutenant Edward Hall to direct him to purchase two clarinets, a bassoon, two French horns, and a bass drum for the band. With the band's arrival in Washington, D.C., came new duties and, more importantly, a new venue. The President's Mansion, today known as the White House, was ready to be occupied by November 1800, and President Adams invited the Marine Band to perform at the first major public event held there, the New Year's Day reception on January 1, 1801. In less than two and a half years, the Marine Band had developed from a group of fifers and drummers to an ensemble of musicians performing harmony music. While this was the Marine Band's first performance at the White House, it was far from its last. We have heard a lot of disputed firsts. Are there any others you can think of, Stephen? Yeah, there's one big one between Purdue University and, again, the University of Illinois. And like the previous arguments about fight songs, this one comes down to wording. And school pride. It's all about the Boilermakers and the Illini, isn't it? And so Purdue claims that made the first formation on the field with their block P, italicized P, in 1907. And the All-American Marching Band still forms this in their pregame show. The Illinois Football Band also has a claim to the formation of school letters around the same time. So jump in. That's the, the football band is what it was referred to before the MI. Did you know that? I did. We have no exact dates, but we do know that starting in the same year, 1907, Illinois was the first to move in and out of formation while playing. So it was very likely that the Illinois Football Band formed the school letter while moving. Although we are all biased right now. Now, Sean, we have had to say at least 30, 40 first in this episode, so I am sure we got some of them wrong. I am absolutely sure we got some of them wrong, and I'm sure many of you listening will take issue with some of the first we discuss. I hope you do one thing. You email us with either what we got wrong, or if you have another band first that you think is really important, email that to us too. And when you do that, Put the claim in there, and then also put the source, because that is the most important thing. As you can tell, we had a hard time finding a lot of hard sources on these first. But we would love to hear from you. So if you want to send us an email, please send it to bands at illinois.edu. 
And now we'll wind down this episode with our rehearsal peak. Each week, we'll play a few minutes of rehearsal from one of our UI bands. It will give you a look into the rehearsal process for our conductors, and it will let you hear our bands as they prepare for performances. Today, we'll peek in on Wind Symphony with their conductor, Dr. Steven Peterson, as they rehearse Lincolnshire Posey by Percy Granger. Please consider following us on iTunes to make sure you don't miss anything if you enjoyed today's episode. And if you didn't enjoy today's episode, please consider following us on iTunes anyway. If you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook. Or you can join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands. And you can tweet us at, at Illinois bands. And of course, you can watch us on Snapchat at Illinois underscore bands. Or if you're old like Sean, you can just go to our website for more information, www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producer of today's show is Sean Smith, and the co-producer is Stephen Cohn. The editing, mixing, recording of interviews, and various other tasks were completed by Sam Litt and Zia Fox. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of the Illinois Bands faculty. Stephen Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Beth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois, and that is in the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We'd like to thank those who contributed to this episode, Gary Smith, Larry Dwyer, Barry Hauser, John Pasquale, Gunnery Sergeant Keir Wharton, Master Sergeant Amanda Simmons of the President's Own, United States Marine Band, Scott Swartz, and Beth Peterson. We hope you will join us next month on One, One More, More Time. Time.